KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, utopia. Utopian has been a term of abuse in politics for a long time now. It's synonymous with irrational. Instead, we are told we should focus on realistic plans to improve things. But the nation is publishing a special issue in defense of utopia. Jeet here will explain how the dreams of a good society keep hope alive and expose the inadequacy of present structures. Also, our TV critic Ella Taylor will talk about the new PBS American Masters documentary about choreographer Alvin Ailey. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect, a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today, as usual, at home in our nation's capital. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Good to be here. Well, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, and the Senate just held a test vote on the new infrastructure bill. That's the one we've been calling bipartisan. Uh, remind us about this bill and about what happened today. Joe Biden said that he wanted to govern in a bipartisan way, knowing full well that that was effectively impossible. But he held out the hope that at least on infrastructure, which traditionally has been supported by both parties, you know, he could draw to an inside straight on that. And in fact, get such a bill passed. And this has required dividing the, Bi the Biden program into two separate pieces of legislation. Uh, one would be a bar bipartisan infrastructure bill, which was limited in scope because it had to be things that Republicans uh, also supported, you know, like filling potholes. Uh, even in theory, Republicans are in favor of filling potholes though politically they create many of them. Uh, and the bulk of Biden's program, and he had uh, run on all kinds of things like free community college, a universal uh, pre-K for three and four-year-olds, uh, a child uh, tax credit, affordable child care. And in the course of dealing, coming up with that legislation, there were some major things added by the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, Bernie Sanders, notably uh, covering uh, three crucial things under Medicare, which have previously not been covered, uh, hearing care, dental care, and eyesight care. So that's the major bill. But the, the fate of these two bills is linked. Most of the Democrats, if not all of the Democrats, said they're only going to vote for the infrastructure bill if they're sure that the uh, bigger bill is going to pass. So with that, a, uh, a team of uh, uh, 10 evenly divided Republicans and Democrats set out to craft the infrastructure bill, and they got sort of a core support from 20 uh, moderates and Republicans. But the Republicans uh, had trouble figuring out how to fund this. And if you want to flash back to the Trump years, even when the Republicans completely controlled both houses of Congress and the White House, they never could pass an infrastructure bill because they didn't uh, uh, really want to fund anything uh, except tax cuts for the rich. So um, uh, they thought they had something worked out, which relied upon the uh, funding mechanism of expanding the IRS so it could collect money that big time tax cheats owed the government. Except that in the Republican, you know, the, the, the guide to Republican faithful, 
There is a, a chapter on uh, everything the IRS does is, is wrong, and we shouldn't expand it, and it just uh, abuses uh, poor, victimized, rich tax cheats. So uh, <laughs> the Republicans said we can't do this, and that left a $100 billion hole in the bill. And they said, okay, we'll come up with something else. Well, times are wasting, and uh, the Biden administration would like to move forward with these two bills, and Chuck Schumer the uh, Democratic majority leader in the Senate would like to uh, move uh, forward with these two bills. So he called for a vote today to begin debate on the infrastructure bill, even though uh, the the, uh, 10 senators negotiating it have yet to find a minimally plausible way of covering that hole created by uh, not giving the IRS power to investigate tax cheats. So This was a way of pressuring these 10 senators to either do something or give up. And so he called for a a vote to begin debate. Uh, He called for that this afternoon as we speak. And since I have been off in space for the last few minutes, you tell me, John, what happened. (laughs) The wide expectation was that Republicans would not agree to begin debate, which would require 60 votes, uh, that it would fall short of 60 and uh, that in effect, this would give the negotiators a few more days to either get their stuff together or hang their heads in shame. We can say with confidence that the Republicans did not vote to begin debate on the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill. Now, does this mean that they would rather not get money for roads and bridges in their own districts if that requires some other form of paying for it other than going into debt. I thought that that roads and bridges were a no-brainer for everybody. Well, you'll recall that the, the, the notion of infrastructure week, the time when the Congress was supposed to address these presumably bipartisan priorities, became a standing joke during the Trump administration. Why was it a standing joke? Well, the Trump administration kept saying, okay, we're going to go for $2 trillion dollars in uh, infrastructure spending, and everyone agrees we need it, and we, the federal government, will put up one-tenth of that. Well, that meant that it was requiring uh, state governments and municipal governments to fund it, and they don't have the money or they would have done this already. And the Republicans also, even though they control government, didn't want to uh, create adequate funding for it. So uh, it never went anywhere, even when Republicans control Congress even though they are supposedly committed to, uh, uh, to infrastructure. Most of their major campaign contributors, uh, I think, are wealthy enough uh, so that they have private jets, chauffeured cars, so that in a way they don't really suffer uh, the kinds of indignities that Americans waiting in normal airports or clunking along on roads that uh, are like plowed fields running against the uh, the cut of the furrows, uh, they don't experience that. And so, um, you know, uh, this was okay. They didn't get chastised by the Wall Street Journal editorialists for not funding uh, infrastructure for regular Americans. And so, no, uh, they, they really don't care if uh, we continue to slowly sink into uh, unstable basements and such. So then there's the rest of the budget. Everything everybody knows not a single Republican will vote for. This is the $3.5 trillion bill, the 
Senate leadership announced last week, Bernie and, and Biden and Chuck Schumer, this is the one that would dramatically expand Medicare in the ways you've described, provide for paid family leave, subsidize child care, make community college free, fund some climate initiatives. The Senate Democrats, as we have said many times, can pass this through reconciliation if they get all 50 Democrats to vote for it. How are we doing on getting all 50 Democrats in line? Well, there still are uh, several moderates, so-called, who have yet to commit, uh, most prominently in general, the two Democrats who most prominently oppose axing the filibuster, uh, West Virginia's Joe Manchin and Arizona's Kristen Cinema. I'm inclined to think, based on some sourcing that I cannot reveal, that Manchin, you know, is okay with this, that, you know, you're from West Virginia, you're essentially representing a state that uh, really needs help. And assuming that West Virginia gets a big chunk of, uh, of, of that, that mega appropriation, he's okay with it. Cinema is more of a mystery, and more of a mystery in part because while West Virginia voted overwhelmingly for, for Trump, by a margin over Biden of more than 30%. Uh, Arizona, as we know, voted for Biden and has two Democratic senators, Cinema included. So it's not exactly clear uh, what she is up to. And uh, I think she is, if not more troubling than Manchin, more mysterious than Manchin. So the Democrats need to get that on, them on board as well. Now, one reason Bernie proposed a $6 trillion mega bill uh, was so that, you know, it would negotiate down to something presumably more suitable for the moderates and still be big. And that's yeah. where we ended up with $3.5 If the bipartisan bill fails, which today it looks like it's likely to do, that can still be incorporated inside the rest of the Democrats' budget and pass through reconciliation. But then it wouldn't be $3.5 anymore. It would be more than 4 trillion, uh, that will be harder to do, I assume, to get Kristen Cinema to agree. Well, I don't right? know. I don't know. I mean, it's the same stuff that, you know, she was already okay with negotiating in the bipartisan bill. Yeah. And she wasn't objecting to the funding sources in the bipartisan bill. That was a Republican's objections to IRS. And for all yeah. of the mysteries uh, that shroud Kristen Cinema. Uh, that is not one of them. She hasn't expressed any opposition to that. So I think if the bipartisan bill fails, if you assume that Manchin and Cinema are ultimately going to sign on to the $3.5 I assume they will also ultimately, uh, under those circumstances, sign on to uh, $4 trillion plus something. I could well, be wrong. <laughs> I would never say that. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> I'd also like to talk about the return of the pandemic with the Delta variant of the COVID virus here in LA. We've gone back to wearing masks indoors. I was interested in the news report in the LA Times that 12 members of the state legislature have refused to say whether they have been vaccinated or not. And guess which party they belong to? Of course, 11 of them are Republicans. They say they don't have to tell because medical records are private. Uh, my guess is that they did get vaccinated because they don't want to die, but they're afraid of revealing that fact because it might provoke a right-wing backlash from their nutball anti-vax base. 
what do you think? I, uh, I agree with you. I mean, obviously, we don't know whether they were vaccinated or not. And obviously, there are some Republican legislators, not only in Sacramento, but in Washington, D.C., who are sufficiently nutball themselves that uh, they are not uh, not vaccinated here in Washington. The contours of the Republican nutball caucus <laughs> in Congress are, are porous. And, uh, it, you know, it's hard to say who is a nutball, who is a cynic. Uh, but, you know, there, there are some clear nutballs who I suspect have not been vaccinated. Uh, but, you know, what we know about the Delta variant is that uh, over 99% of the people who are coming down with COVID today have not received the vaccinations. And hardly anyone who has received the vaccinations uh, comes down with COVID. So that's a pretty... Uh, you know that, that yeah. that's a pretty straight line. Some yeah. Republicans are beginning to urge. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. Let me let me go through that. I look I look this up because, you know, Trump, a famous germaphobe, did get vaccinated. There was a survey of all 535 members of Congress by CNN about two months ago. They found that, of course, a hundred percent of Democrats in both the Senate and the House are fully vaccinated. 92% of Republican senators, but only 45% of Republicans in the House, less than half of House Republicans have been vaccinated. How do you explain the difference between the Senate and the House Republicans? Well, senators don't have the luxury of carving their own districts. They run in states, and, and some of them uh, are in states that Republicans barely uh, cling to. Some of them are in states that, uh, you know, Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden carried. Uh, on the other hand, in the House, gerrymandering, you know, can create districts that are entirely safe, where the only electoral challenge that an incumbent faces is a primary election. And so I think that, you know, almost 50 point difference, 50% difference between uh, the rate of Senate vaccination among Republicans and House vaccination among Republicans is probably largely due to that. Plus which I think, you know, the Josh Hawley's and the uh, Rand Paul's notwithstanding, it's easier for Republicans to have, uh, you know, a real nutcase Republican from a House district than uh, than in the Senate. As you've remarked, there, there are now some top Republicans who are coming out publicly and urging other Republicans to get vaccinated, notably Mitch McConnell, who said on Monday, quote, these shots need to get in everybody's arm as rapidly as possible. I want to encourage everyone to ignore those other voices that are giving demonstrably bad advice. Another one was Steve Scalise of Louisiana in the House, the number two Republican in the House leadership. He announced that he'd received his first dose of the Pfizer vaccine over the weekend and urged other people to follow suit. The first vote uh, dose at the end of July, of course, he could have gotten it six months ago. So there's, there is a, a shift. And we're also seeing a split at Fox News on this. Uh, Sean Hannity had been calling the virus a hoax on his show Monday. He said, quote, enough people have died. It absolutely makes sense for many Americans to get vaccinated. I believe in science. I believe in the science of vaccination, close quote, Sean Hannity. Of course, there are other voices at Fox News saying 
the opposite. Uh, What do we make of this gigantic split in Republican ranks? Well, I think to a certain degree, some Republicans have realized that if anyone kicks the bucket from this disease, it's likely (laughs) that he or she is a Republican. Uh, And uh, that would uh, impel, you (laughs) would think, uh, some elected Republicans to say, uh, okay, I don't care what the, the large nutcase component of my party is saying, uh, we need to keep our members alive. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that's motivating them. Um, and the usual toxic brew of anti-science disbelief, loyalty to what they think Trump is, is uh, stands for, that kind of thing, uh, hatred of uh, scientific elites and so on, uh, is driving the other wing of the party. You know, this is this to me is the big mystery of the Republican political strategy over the past year. The one truly good thing Donald Trump did was Operation Warp Speed. It accomplished a genuine medical miracle. Nobody thought they would get a vaccine so quickly or that the vaccine would be so effective so quickly. Trump himself, as I said, got vaccinated. His kids, his wife all got vaccinated. He could have run for reelection. And the Republicans could have followed, arguing he kept us safe. He could. It's easy to imagine he could have won around the slogan, he kept us safe, because it would have been partly true. And maybe the Republicans would have held on to the Senate, too. But instead, uh, they you know, decided to oppose the vaccine, to denounce the quarantines, to fight the lockdowns, to attack Dr. Fauci, and not to say a word about the 600,000 Americans who, who have died. It didn't have to be that way. Uh, how do you explain the the what seems to me bizarre political strategy of the Republicans this past there, year? Yeah, I think there are two factors here. One is that the vaccine really didn't become available until after the election. The election was November 2020. Uh, people started getting vaccines around New Year's, so th- there was a time lag there. And but. Trump likes to campaign on personal grievance, and Trump's personal grievances became holy writ throughout the party. That was part of it. Uh, Cultural resentment is is sort of the bedrock of the new Republican Party, and there wasn't any cultural resentment in hailing Operation Warp Speed. So it kind of ran counter, as it were, to the party's, for lack of a better term, secular religious belief. It's secular religious belief is is that professional elites in a non-economic sense are cultural elites, they're evil, and we need to run against them no matter what. And they did, and they lost. One more thing. Every week we talk about voting rights. As we've said here many times, Republicans have gone to war against mail voting, against early voting. As you put it recently in the prospect, Republicans are pretty much against anything other than showing up at the polls on election day to vote Republican voting. But you did find one notable exception. Yeah, uh, I I noticed a New York Times story uh, that documented how many Republicans are availing themselves of the House rule adopted uh, at the uh, uh, suggestion of Speaker Pelosi of the House rule that while COVID was going on, you could vote remotely in the House. You could vote from your home district. You could vote from wherever. And lo and behold, a number of Republicans are doing this. And a number of Republicans are doing this not even for COVID-related reasons, but because they were at the CPAC convention in 
Florida or uh, touring uh, the U.S.-Mexico border with Donald Trump, and they're fine with this. So they do a form of absentee voting, but fear it when it may lead to some people actually casting ballots for Democrats. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here, John. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about utopia. It's been a term of abuse in politics for a long time now. It's synonymous with irrational and impossible. Instead, we are told we should focus on how politics can improve things with voting by mail, Medicare for all, and a green infrastructure bill. But the nation is publishing a special issue in defense of utopia. For that, we turn to Jeet here. He's a national affairs correspondent for the nation and author of the book, In Love with Art. It's about Francois Mouly and Art Spiegelman. We reached him today at home in Regina, Saskatchewan. Jeet here, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Well, utopian means doomed to failure, doesn't it? Well, I mean, that's an interesting sort of question because there is a kind of tradition, uh, both um, on the right, naturally, but also on the left, uh, using utopian as a term of abuse. Margaret Thatcher's famous uh, statement, there is no alternative, is the, the, the great anti-utopian slogan. But, you know, Marx and Engels also used utopian as a term of abuse for a type of socialist that they thought was like simply interested in making uh, plans and had no real means to achieve those plans and thought that like simply willing a better world was sufficient. So, so you want to think that there's this united front of left and right against utopia and in favor of realism. But the fact is that utopia is coterminous with modernity itself. That at the very beginning of you know what we consider the modern age, Thomas More wrote this uh, book that coined uh, the phrase utopia and was also a trip to an imaginary land that had solved many problems, but was also like a really savage critique of the nature of European society at the time, of like the sort of warmongering, the enclosure of the lands that was destroying the peasantry. And so one sees it more, and in subsequent writers, the fact that utopia has always been a necessary component of social critique and also of social activism, that uh, utopia is what gives us dreams. And didn't Marx himself propose a utopia after the revolution, after capitalism? We'd have a world without class conflict, without exploitation, where workers would control production, and the rule would be from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs. That's from the critique of the GOTA program, 1875. That's a utopia. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, Marx had a kind of utopian component to his thinking. And in some ways, if you want any sort of change, you have to have some sort of utopian ideal. And I think there's been a considerable body of analysis, uh, going back to the German uh, thinker Ernst Bloch, who was kind of working in the uh, Marxist tradition, but in contemporary America, Frederick Jameson, that has really emphasized the necessity of utopian thinking 
Um, and also what happens when you don't have utopia? Uh, Jameson has this great statement that it's easier for us to now imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Yeah, let's talk about that. Dystopia is everywhere. People don't have a problem imagining the worst possible society, even if they don't try to imagine the best possible society. Why is dystopia so ubiquitous today? Well, I mean, I, I think it's hard to separate out the popularity of dystopia from the kind of you know limitations of the imagination that were a byproduct of you know the rise of neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s. And so once you have can't imagine a better world, unless you're you know Francis Fukuyama, most of us don't accept that history has come to an end, right? Yeah, so, right. so there's like three paths. Things get better, things remain the same, and things get worse. And if you foreclose saying things aren't going to get better, and there's a few people like Francis Fukuyama who say, well, this is actually the best of all possible worlds, things will remain the same. But most people intuitively know that that's not the way you know the world works, and they can easily imagine like things getting worse. And of course, we do actually have many pressing things that happen that are happening that are dystopian. I mean, obviously, climate change is dystopian. Obviously, the pandemic that we're still living through is dystopian, and that becomes the dominant mode of thinking about the future, not how will we improve the future, but how will we survive the future? And it's everywhere. I mean, like going back the last two decades, one season in everything in like, you know, the popularity of Handmaid's Tale, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, but also like you go to any, if you have a teenager, children, um, you know, you go to any bookstore and you look at what's on the shelf for YA fiction and it's all, you know, dystopias. It's like, this is what we're offering our children, an imagination of disaster. And we were just based on the, the reality that it's a grim world. In your piece that opens the Utopia special issue of the nation, you quote the famous Marxist sociologist Emmanuel Wallerstein, who wrote in 1998 against Utopia. He wrote, Utopias are breeders of illusions and therefore inevitably of disillusion. And he adds, Utopias can be used and have been used as justifications for terrible wrongs. The last thing we need is more utopian visions, close quote, Emmanuel Wallerstein. What do you think of that? Yeah, I want to give him some credit in the fact that obviously one can think of examples, you know, from history. The, the, the name Stalin, I think, is a, is a useful <laughs> for, thing to keep bear in mind of, of, of utopian arguments being used for ill. But I mean, it's also, you know, dystopian arguments are also used for ill. Actually, historically, utopian thinking has been the seedbed for a lot of progress. And one sees this. Uh, in American history, going back to the sort of remarkable period of the 1820s and 1830s, uh, where that is almost totally forgotten in history books, but the ideas of, you know, Charles Foyer, uh, this French utopian thinker took off, and there were many people in the United States who started to build these sort of communes. What sprang up in these communes, even though they failed, was that these were communes where people tried to build up ideas of gender equality, of you know, men and women working and sharing equally, of racial equality. They were real seedbeds of abolitionist thought. And um, really the sort of birthplace of a lot of the sort of social egalitarianism that you know, has really enormously benefited America and has in fact changed the world. Some listeners might know this movie Metropolitan by Whit Stillman. It's a sudden sort of um, uh, New York high society and there's one character who calls himself a foyerist. And uh, uh, he's challenged by uh, someone else and says, Foyer, uh, wasn't that Brooks Farm? Didn't that fail? 
And he said, well, you could say it failed, but like everything fails in the end. The, the question is, what did you what did it achieve? And so I would actually maintain that the utopians of the 1830s achieved something. And one can see it again in the 1880s, 1890s, where there's a huge upsurge of utopian thinking and writing, perhaps most lastingly in the book, Looking Backwards by Edward Bellamy. And that was tied to the sort of progressive and populist movement, which again had real achievements. So I, I would say utopian, you know, Cantor Wallerstein has had actually very positive, utopian thinking has had positive achievements. Critics often say that utopian thinking is a sign of the defeat of the left. It arises in periods of defeat when our efforts to make progress have not succeeded. We console ourselves with dreams of a perfect future. You're suggesting that's actually not the way it's worked historically. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think that that's like actually accurate. People like Frederick Jameson and Perry Anderson, who I cite in my piece, cite the examples of where utopian literature has flourished. And um, it's often, as I said, uh, been the sort of springboard. A more recent example is the really uh, rich flourishing of gender utopianism of the 1960s and 70s. One can see is in the 70s a start of a sort of political and economic defeat to neoliberalism. But on issues of gender, I don't think that there has been necessarily so much of a defeat. And in fact, many of the sort of thinking of, of that period, which was seen in the fictions of people like Ursula K. Le Guin or Joanna yeah. Russ or Samuel R. Delaney, it was really transformative and, you know, has brought us to, uh, you know, the world of today of where, you know, gender fluidity is much more recognized than accepted and is a much sort of, you know, richer thinking of the diversity of gender roles. So, yeah, I, I, I just categorically reject the idea that this is just wish fulfillment or thinking. It's actually how people exercise their imagination to get to the place of political activism. And let's emphasize here uh, that the opposite of utopia is not rational policy making. It's ideological closure. It's, as you quote Margaret Thatcher saying, there is no alternative. It's where we're trapped forever in the present structures of inequality and injustice and exploitation and able only to make, you know, small improvements in the minimum wage or something like that. That's right. That's no, that's exactly right. One could say that there is a kind of anti-utopianism of the left of the Marx and Engels sort, which is like, you know, emphasizes the necessity of praxis or thinking about uh, historical process or historical situation. And that's like very important. But, you know, like you have to have the two things. Um, Oscar Wilde once said, you know, like a map without utopia would hardly be worth having. And <laughs> I, I like that idea of like a map. Like I think people need a mental map of like where they're going in the world, where they want to end up. To that end, like, yeah, I feel like utopian aspirations are essential. Like I don't, I don't see how one could uh, live without them. And it's not, not just Charles Fourier and Frederick Jameson, and let's mention Herbert Marcuse, who assert the need for the utopian imagination. Let's not forget, imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Uh, that's something that all young kids in America learn to sing, at, at, and they're quite happy with it. No, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, to think back at the, the moment of the 60s of the sort of energy that was there, um, the giddiness, the, the sort of willingness to let the imagination run wild. I, I think that, I mean, on a, just on a very basic human level, like I feel that these are like actually essential parts of what it is to be human. 
people need to have a sense of play in their in their life. I mean, one sees this in ch- children. Like, can you imagine a child that doesn't play? Like, <laughs> what would that that be like? The in some ways, I mean, the utopian component is both a dis- uh, freeing up of that will to playfulness, and also trying to take us to a world where playfulness uh, is much more expansive a part of our lives. So how are we doing right now uh, with the utopian imagination? Well, actually, I, I'm, the nation issue, I think, is a very telling because I actually think that people are more open to like really radical ideas, even coming from like not necessarily very radical sources than they have before. One sees it in um, like just like the figure of Andrew Yang, you know, who obviously failed both in the presidential run and as mayor of New York, but who did excite a lot of attention. And it was basically all based on this idea of, you know, universal basic income, which in, you know, the form that Yang was offering was even like very minimal, but like, it seemed very interesting that, you know, one could get uh, attention and some political traction based on an idea that would actually fundamentally change the nature of uh, work. And I think that one sees a lot of uh, utopian thinking on like in the economic realm where for the first time in a long time, like you have this opening for things like, you know, modern monetary theory of trying to reconceptualize the nature of economics and what can be moved. And even things like, you know, the Green New Deal. I mean, there's the kind of minimalist form that sort of Pelosi and I, Biden seem to be pushing. But like, you know, like one sees like among the people who are like advocating for it, things like, you know, revived Tennessee Valley Authority, right? Like a really large scale social enterprise and uh, uh, spending. And again, in some ways, uh, what, the point that you made about dystopia and utopia has to be borne in mind that the future is open and the future is not going to be the same. I mean, we just saw this over the last, through the pandemic. The future is not going to be just what we're used to. And if we don't, you know, imagine if we think about ways to make it better, the forces of change are going to come from a dark place. And I think we saw this in the pandemic because it created an opening for like, you know, sort of big pharma and for research of a kind of nationalism. And I think that's going to happen with things like climate, that if one doesn't have positive Green New Deal, it's not going to be, well, okay, then things are just going to remain the same. It's going to have climate change, and then we'll have large corporations doing geoengineering or something, you know, truly dark and uh, dystopian. So I I think that's worth bearing in mind as well, that like um, we have to be prepared for a world where things are going to change very radically. And unless there's like blueprints for the best way to develop that world, we're likely to get the worst way. Some of my favorite examples of the utopian imagination today are the discussions on climate change, not just federal subsidies for solar and wind power generation, but an end to fossil fuels. Not just asylum for refugees, but a world without borders. And these are things which we now talk about in the nation. That's right. I don't know exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, if we're going to have like large scale migrations, then a sort of borderless world has to be part of the agenda. Whatever new technologies are developing, like, you know, as with the vaccine, they have to be like shared quickly. And one sees in the failure of the vaccine, the way in which not having a utopian vision just locks in the status quo and actually makes things worse. It just says with the vaccine, like what the left is pressing for and should continue to press for is that getting rid of property, intellectual property rights and sharing the vaccine widely, as we develop new technologies, we can't like leave it to the uh, profit mongers. They actually have to be spread far and wide. 
and shared far and wide. So in some ways, the, the crisis that we're facing that is now ongoing is pressing us towards utopian solutions. Jade here. He is the lead piece in the nation's new special issue on Utopia. You can read the whole thing at thenation.com. Thank you, Jeet. This was great. Okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're really good to be here. Yeah. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for TV Talk with Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime critic and writer for the LA Weekly, NPR.org, the LA Times op-ed page, lots of other places, and she teaches at USC's School of Cinema. We reached her today, as usual, at home in Santa Monica. Hi, Ella. Hi, John. Well, first up today, we want to talk about a documentary about Alvin Ailey, of course, the iconic black choreographer. It's called simply Ailey. Tell us about it. It was picked up by um, Neon, the innovative film company at Sundance, where it apparently went over very big. And it opens in New York theaters on Friday, then wide on August the 6th. And PBS, there's no information yet about when it will open, but I think if you have a passport to PBS, you could probably find it pretty easily. It's actually, uh, it's a very moving um, documentary about Alvin Ailey and the American Dance Theatre, very mostly black, but also very diverse dance company with uh, some white dancers in it, which may not sound very radical right now, but in 1964, when he founded it, um, it was pretty astonishing. Um, and the film, which is directed by Jamila Wignot, is an attempt really to mirror Ailey's very sensual sensibility on stage in her movie, which she does, I think, with, with considerable success. So the movie is structured, it begins with, uh, not long before he died, uh, Ailey's receiving uh, Kennedy honor. And the movie is structured in part by a fairly straight PBS chronology of his life and his career in a very warm way with an undertow of sadness, which I'll get to, into in a minute, interspersed with rehearsals um, with his company for a tribute to him. And it ends spectacularly, and that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> his childhood is, like so many Black artists, um, he, he came from... He was a child of a single mother who worked in the fields of rural Texas. She was extremely supportive. He never knew his father, uh, doesn't know who, didn't know who he was. And uh, very early on, he found his way to Los Angeles. And uh, there he experienced, uh, he, he went to see all kinds of ballets. I don't know how he afforded it, and the, the movie doesn't say. And it just switched him on. He had always loved dance. Uh, in particular, he had been influenced by the church and by the house parties um, that blacks used to hold at that time, which we saw in 
um, Steve McQueen's axe in one of the episodes in very vibrant colors. And you see these in, in black and white footage there, and they were a tremendous influence on, on his work. From Los Angeles, uh, where he became very enamored of the ballet, the theater, the opera, just, you know, the, the arts in the performing arts in general, made his way to New York and started this company, which is a massive achievement for a young man with almost no education and, he, and was an autodidact in his chosen field as well. And uh, it didn't have much success in the United States to start with. They had no money. They were touring the States with the cheapest, in the cheapest hotels with buses eating junk food, which is not great for dancers. <laughs> um, but uh, was a great success in Europe, and particularly with um, black audiences in Germany, where apparently it was just a huge hit, which gave him great encouragement. And then he became, uh, and the dance company became, a much more mainstream hit in the United States, especially on the East Coast, but certainly touring as well. Uh, and we hear testimony from his collaborators, perhaps most uh, enchantingly from Judith De Jameson, um, who was a principal dancer with him. And I think it's fair to say, I'm not a dance maven, but I, I think it's certainly fair to say that Jameson, who was, I think, six feet tall and uh, quite well built, uh, was a pioneer uh, in opening up dance to to female dancers who were not wraiths <laughs> uh, and uh, a marvelous dancer too. He obviously had an eye for the unusual and eventually she took over the company when he became ill and she's very articulate, a very striking figure even uh, today. She must be in her 80s by now. The problem for Alvin Ailey was it was multiple. First of all, that he felt, as so many Black artists do, that they have become the token in their field, that he was regarded as a token choreographer and pressured really to represent only the Black experience. Now, he was very good at that in um, the blues suite and revelations and so on of experiencing particularly rural blacks. Um, but he did not want to be pinned in that way. And he was looking to expand his form. So eventually he took on jazz uh, much more as an influence uh, in his dance. For him, there was a personal problem too, which is that he had a great deal of difficulty with relationships. I mean, he was gay, um, but that I think was not in itself the problem for him. It was that he had difficulty in relationships. I mean, this was a fatherless boy. Um, his mother was extremely supportive and we actually see her quelling mm -hmm. when he gets uh, awards. It's extremely moving. But he had periods of uh, quite serious mental illness and landed in the hospital at, at one point, had periods of fairly intense depression, struck up a relationship with a, um, a young man named uh, Abdullah in Paris and brought him to live with him. And at one of his parties, the young man escaped down the fire escape and was never seen again. And that absolutely, um, you know, unhinged um, Alvin Ailey, who was very attached to him. Uh, had other relationships, but nothing that lasted. And so the company became his family. 
And uh, when he got AIDS himself, um, there are some, you know, very moving encomia to his sad decline. He never actually said that he had AIDS. And uh, Arnie Zane, who is getting a documentary of his own very soon and and, uh, is an extremely articulate former collaborator, he says rather tendentiously in the movie that... um, that Ailey's compositions lacked not sensuality, but sexuality, that that was an area, you know, from what I've seen, that's not the case. (laughs) But uh, I I don't mean to go up against Arnie Zane, who knows a lot more about dance than I do. Um, And unfortunately, it made him quite an isolated figure in those last years when he was wasting away from AIDS and had only the company and his mother um, for consolation and solace. It's a film that's really worth seeing. Um, it has some grainy imagery from the past um, and you can't tell whether that's from another documentary or whether it's made up um, but it's very effective at looking at the history uh, um, of uh, black history uh, at the time that he was growing up I wish that they had said somewhere where it was so that I could identify it but the movie really gains from it Ailey the documentary about Alvin Ailey will be on PBS American Masters broadcast, I guess, sometime in August and may be available streaming uh, to PBS Passport now. A second, we want to talk about the new uh, French film with the wonderful Isabelle Huppert in 2020. The New York Times ranked Isabelle Huppert the second on its list of the greatest actors of the 21st century. This was the work of Manola Dargis and A.O. Scott, names which we are all familiar with. Her new film is called Mama Weed. How is the second greatest actor of the 21st century in Mama Weed? Well, she's, I wouldn't say she's on top form here, only because the film is more of an amuse-bouche than it is a full meal. Um, It's a very enjoyable, fun crime caper in which Huppert, who's known for her great intensity as an actor, and I think that certainly Dargis and Scott are correct in that regard, she's extraordinary, um, is having a blast in a comedy, in a crime caper that's based on a novel by a criminal lawyer named Hannah Law Serre. And uh, the director is Jean-Paul Salome. And uh, it's really got a very boisterous spirit. Huppert is, may, is playing um, the wiretap. She translates wiretaps um, on drug dealers for the Paris police. She's also a widow. Uh, her husband died of a, a stroke, I believe, at a very young age, and is, she's never quite got over that. But she's got an awful lot to carry in her current life, in particular, a lot of bills for her Jewish mothers. She's got a Yiddish-speaking ornery mother um, who's in assisted living and is not treating her very well. Um, Her father hasn't been in the picture for a long time. She has taken a lover um, who happens to be her boss, who's played by the great um, actor Hippolyte Girardot. I've been dying to say that name on the radio. (laughs) Um, And she has also a Chinese landlady who's um has an increasingly prominent role in the movie because both of them are in need of money 
um, when Patience, as Zupé's character is called, uh, although she doesn't have a lot of Patience, um, <laughs> patience uh, she falls into, um, she, you know, her, her language is Arabic that she posts in, and when she falls into overhearing about a huge stash of weed, and she decides, with the increasing collaboration of the Chinese woman, that they are going to divert this because the police, her boss, is on the case too to try and find this huge stash, which is being hidden uh, and uh, moved about by the Chakui brothers, who are a drug dealing gang from uh, northern North Africa. Hence, she can she can track where it's going. So she dresses up as an observant Muslim middle-aged woman. This is the most fun part for me. Yes, and uh, she gets to be the middle woman who actually attracts all the dough. I won't say whether she actually gets to keep it or not, but there are some things she also wants that have to do with her father uh, and her former husband. And the movie is sort of a high-spirited loads of fun um, in which she pulls the wool over not only her boss's eyes, but the rather dimly bulbed drug dealers as well. <laughs> and uh, I will say that that um, a couple of weeks ago when we reviewed Lupin, we noted that there was a dog named Jacques Hughes. <laughs> in this film, there is a dog named DNA. <laughs> So um, I wouldn't go in expecting a masterpiece, but she's clearly having a great time, as is everybody else in this, and it's a, a delightful film to watch. Mama Weed, starring Isabelle Huppert, opens online this week where? Um, at Apple. You can pre-order um, at Apple via the usual links and also Fandango Now, and uh, I believe it's at Lemley Virtual Cinemas also. Ella Taylor is our film and TV critic. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's Programming Traffic Director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rai Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.